CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Coindesk is calling on visionaries in the digital economy to present at our newest event, Ideas, Investing in Digital Assets and Enterprises Summit. Ideas is the place for you to present your marketing opportunity in front of leading investors poised to help you get your idea off the ground. Apply today to become a presenter at Ideas 2022 by Coindesk. Visit coindesk.com forward slash ideas for more information. This episode is sponsored by Circle and Near. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. Over the past year, we've talked quite a bit on this show about the quickly evolving crypto policy environment. As the industry grows, governments are paying attention, looking to get up to speed fast. I spent this summer in Washington, D.C., and I was struck by the number of topics teams juggle on a daily basis. In addition to crypto, a typical day might involve everything from truck safety to student loan debt to health emergencies. So when trying to make important decisions, policy teams often look to trusted research to understand the state of play around key issues. Enter think tanks, some of the most influential institutions in D.C. For those who aren't familiar, think tanks are research institutions that generally sit somewhere between academia and policy, and there are different types. Some have very specific focus areas or political leanings, while others are more general with broad research agendas. Given their evidence-based approach, think tanks can be the first call for policy teams looking for data to support informed policy decision-making. In fact, a lot of the seminal research and policy influence around financial markets has come from think tanks over the past decade. And now many of these are turning their attention specifically to crypto. I've had the chance to work with a few, such as Brookings, the Atlantic Council, and New America, in addition to work on development with ODI, who's the executive director we've had on the show. And I'm really looking forward to our discussion today with two experts in this area, Josh Lipsky and John Sarishian. Josh is the senior director of the Atlantic Council's Geoeconomics Center, where he manages the council's CBDC's tracker project. He previously served as an advisor to the International Monetary Fund and was a speechwriter for Christine Lagarde. John Sarishian, Senior Associate Director for Technology at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Prior to working there, he worked at the Brookings Institution and Treasury Department on a variety of economic policy issues. We'll be discussing how think tanks approach crypto and how this has changed over time. 
the big focus for research agendas at these think tanks over the next year and some predictions possibly for the upcoming congressional session. Welcome Josh and John, but before we bring them in, let's turn to my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hey, we haven't talked a lot about think tanks on the show, but they really are kind of the relatively silent, but quite loud voice in the crypto policy space. Yeah, it sounds like it's great to see some of these sort of more mainstream names attaching onto it. Like I, I know when I was first got interested in this space, you know, writing about it as a journalist in, you know, 2013, 14, 15, I was like, why aren't there more of these think tanks diving into this space? Because regardless of what position you take on, you know, pros or cons of it, it's just fascinating, right? It's, it's such a different way of, of viewing the world. So I'm, I'm very glad to see guys like Josh and John latching on to what is ultimately just a really interesting field of study. And, you know, I think it adds huge value to the public debate to have institutions like theirs and, and specifically these two people and others like them, you know, giving their input and, and sort of really enriching the conversation around which policymakers have to make decisions. So let's get to it. Let's bring them in. I think a lot of our audience, crypto people particularly, may not have heard of think tanks. They might know some of these names and names of your organizations, but they don't possibly really know exactly what think tanks do. So perhaps we'll just start there. You know, what is the goal and role of a think tank in your view? Maybe we'll start with you, Josh. Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the intro and appreciate you highlighting the role of think tanks. Obviously, a little biased uh, working at a think tank, but I do think we're impactful in the policy space in D.C., you know, what we do at the Atlantic Council, what other think tanks do, first and foremost, is research. And we at the Geoeconomic Center have chosen future of money as one of our primary areas of research. Central bank digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, stable coins all fall under that. And when we started this initiative two years ago, when I came over from the IMF, some people questioned, well, why is a foreign policy think tank? The Atlantic Council is traditionally known as a foreign policy think tank, focusing so much on digital currencies. No one asked that question now. Because everyone understands these are financial issues, they're economic issues, they are geopolitical issues as well. And that's why we think it's so core to our work at the Atlantic Council and my center, the Geoeconomic Center. But we don't just research. We first, you know, we put the information out there. We have our CBDC project, track what's happening around the world. We explain to policymakers on the Hill and the administration and in foreign governments what's happening, brief on our research, both publicly and privately. But we also try to shape policy. You know, we have our own ideas at the center of where we think things should go. And maybe I have senior fellows who don't fully agree with me, but we basically believe there should be U.S. leadership and innovation in this space. And so through our work, through our speaking and our writing and our research and our public and private briefings and events, we try to move policy in that direction. And I think we've been successful, really, in the CBDC space in particular, of elevating what's happening around the world, showing how many countries are doing this and really putting it on policymakers' radars in a different way than before. And then reports we've done like cybersecurity and privacy and digital currency saying, okay, you've showed us it's a problem, what should we do about it? And then we basically give the blueprint for that. So that's a sort of broad overview of how we think about it from the think tank space, research and then impacting policy. That's extremely helpful. And John, I guess I'll ask a follow-up question to you, which is, you know, how do you go about doing this research? You know, who are you asking? Are you at the user level? Are you, when, I guess when it comes to fintech or even crypto specifically, is it industry you're talking to? Like, what is the basis and is it independent? It'd be helpful to get a sense of that. Thanks for having me on your show first. And I think Josh summarized a lot of what think tanks have done as to how we go about our research. Uh, let me talk about the Bipartisan Policy Center specifically. 
so we try to work with the two parties to try to bring them together to try to you know hash out agreement or at least identify where areas of disagreement are uh, when necessary. But we also work to bring a variety of stakeholders who are not necessarily like Democrat versus Republican, uh, but that disagree with each other. So oftentimes it's you know. Uh, industry versus civil society, or industry, different factions of industry versus themselves, or different advocacy groups that are on opposing sides of an issue, or in some cases, open-minded. So our sort of motto is not just to do research, but engage with stakeholders and try to find areas of a compromise, or at least better understand uh, sort of where the debate is at, where people disagree, and what trade-offs are there. So how do we go about our research? We often try to identify uh, relevant issues. So I work at the intersection of both the technology team at the Bipartisan Policy Center and the business team that does a lot of finance. So this was an interesting opportunity where both tech issues and finance issues kind of uh, intersect. So we've been trying to identify who the relevant stakeholders and players in this space are. Uh, what are the issues people care about on Capitol Hill, the agencies, and externally? And what BPC can do, what value add BPC can have, both in terms of doing research, educating people bringing the stakeholders together, whether it's private convenings, public events, uh, to tackle the tough issues uh, we face in this space. Okay, thanks for that, guys, giving us the, the rundown of, as, as Sheila said, not everyone necessarily knows what think tanks do. I think people like me, journalists, we just deal with you guys all the time, so I'm probably more familiar. But very much uh, happy to have you engage in the conversation, as I said. You know, I want to dive into some of the substantial issues. And Josh, I want to go to you first. You know, you're a geopolitical expert. I mean, really, this is a, a fascinating time to be going into this. I, I want to specifically go to the circumstances around the Ukraine war, the fact that Russia is essentially being what was somewhat removed from the global financial system with regards to the exclusion from SWIFT and the sort of freezing of its reserves. And a lot of people who think like, hey, this is a, a game changer, that we're now potentially into a world where we're bifurcating the global financial system, where the sort of the guarantees of the dollar as the world's reserve currency, you know, maybe at some point in the future uh, put into challenge. I'm just wondering how you, what you make of all this. Is that overstating the significance of, of where things go? And I think obviously specifically what it all means for crypto and CBDCs uh, as an alternative to that system. So it's, it's actually, it's a great question and one we get asked by the Hill a lot. And so I, I would say this. Countries like Russia and China and others have been interested in moving away from over-reliance on a dollar-based system for years. So what Russia's invasion of Ukraine and then the G7 response, the sanctions response, the freezing of the assets, the cutting off SWIFT, does potentially is accelerate the ambitions they already had. But then the question becomes how. It's much easier to say you want to get off the dollar than actually get off the dollar in the way our international financial system is built. And one thing we show in our research, getting back to the point of what think tanks can do, is to say CBDCs, especially wholesale CBDCs, and now I'm not talking about China's ECNY and retail, I'm talking about bank-to-bank -bank CBDCs, where you don't have to go through SWIFT and other messaging systems, could be an alternative for countries to give them a hedge, a way out, a way around the U.S. sanctions regimes, with an important caveat, it's not ready for prime time. So when we talk about a dollar-based system, fracturing of the dollar-based system, all possible, all a real risk, technology and digital assets provide countries with a potential avenue to do it, but it's not tomorrow. And so what think tanks can do, back to the original question, is look ahead a little bit, a year, two years, three years, and say, hey, DC, you're so worried about X and the freezing of the assets. That's important. 
but understand the implications in two or three years' time on the international financial system. So is it a possibility? Yes. Is the technology there? Yes. But no country, including China, is ready to flip a switch right now and get off a dollar-based international financial system. Yeah, look, I'm just personally, I think that's that's the, exactly the right read. I mean, I think the uh, the potential to actually have a system around this is the real challenge. And yeah, we're not yet there, but it may not be that far down the road, right? So like, you just can't sit on your hands and wait. So I, I'm going to go back to you, Justin, I want to get John into the conversation as well. But like, one of the arguments that people are making is that the US could potentially burnish the strength of the dollar in this moment right now not so much by going after the development of a CBDC, but by encouraging the spread of stable coins and allowing dollars to bloom everywhere. So I'd like to get your take on that from a geopolitical perspective. Then I'd really love to hear John's perspective from where policy yeah. uh, angle is. I, I disagree slightly. And, and let me explain why, because we deal with a lot of central banks and finance ministries all over the world. They are wary of dollar stable coin for understandable reasons of monetary sovereignty, what will be the regulatory framework around that dollar-based stablecoin? How will it impact my economy? What are the inflows, outflows of that dollar stablecoin? They are actually more comfortable a US CBDC because they have relationships with the Fed. They have relationships with Treasury. They feel like those institutions would not do something that would overwhelm, swamp digital dollarization, basically, of their economy. Dollarization of an economy is already a concern. It's been a concern in the global economy for decades. Now, digital dollarization is another iteration of that. So I think the question is, can the U.S. develop a framework that encourages innovation, encourages what we're seeing in dollar-backed stablecoins, but then also offers what I would describe as basically a public option, a U.S. CBDC that can be used in partnership with dollar-backed stablecoins because the Fed doesn't want to be retail-facing, but for certain transaction between central banks, large-scale transaction between finance ministries, is there some assurances that a U.S. CBDC would provide to the system? So I, from my perspective, it's a long way of saying a dollar-backed stablecoin raises a lot of questions for countries around the world. Okay, John, so what do you, I don't know if you agree with that. I mean, there's one way I would sort of like, like to frame Josh's answer a bit. Like he's thinking about things from the perspective of U.S. sort of geopolitical relations. I mean, some of the arguments for a stablecoin approach to this driver is actually to just not think about that relationship and actually just you know, basically seed the dollar into places like, you know, regions like Africa and everywhere else, right? And that might, in fact, be an antagonistic thing for the United States to be doing if, in fact, it's, you know, looking to indirectly promote digital dollarization, as Josh put it. So there's some, a lot of huge sensitivities around that. What are you guys sort of advocating or seeing, at least, within the, the policy framework for stablecoins as this, in the context of this geopolitical question? Yeah, sure. So in terms of uh, sort of the issue of international competition in this space, one, I'll just first caveat by saying I'm not as in the weeds on international issues as Josh is. So just take that with a grain of salt. And BPC does not yet have a official position on this topic. We uh, tried to reach consensus before coming out the position. But overall, I think it's a very critical issue when it comes to global competition. When a new technology comes about, different players on the international stage are trying to figure out what works best for them. And, and at the end of the day, we are competing in a lot of these uh, markets. Now, the CBDC issue is something the Federal Reserve has been looking into. I believe it was uh, earlier this year. They had put out a white paper, I believe it was, sort of matching the pros and cons of CBDCs. Capitol Hill has had some hearings on this topic. And I think it's something that's top of mind at pretty much like every major central bank, including the U.S., 
different countries are sort of at different stages on CBDCs. So that's an area where I think a lot of people are thinking about right now. Now, CBDCs versus more private cryptocurrencies, I think that's also an interesting question. So Josh mentioned sort of having them in parallel to each other, if I understood Josh correctly. And that's something I think we're going to see play out because one general thing, technology is, you know, you can do a lot of analysis and research and sort of like ponder about the issues. Sometimes you also have to experiment and see what works in the real world, what doesn't. And I think one thing that we are doing right now is we're following what other countries are doing in this space to see how well, again, CBDCs are working with the people who've adopted or at least are doing pilot programs on the space. And then in the marketplace, we're seeing private crypto, how they're being adopted or used. Another general point I want to make is we need to think of this from a global competition perspective. Yes, we also need to think of it in terms of other issues. So what's the appropriate regulatory framework? What are the pros and cons? And what are the general issues that need to be resolved or at the very least need to be uh, somewhat addressed uh, before going you know, into the next stage? Join us for Converge 22, Circle's first annual conference on the blockchain-driven future of money, coming this September to San Francisco. Converge 22 is a gathering for what's next in Web3, featuring demos and developer workshops, plus guest speakers like our very own Money Reimagined co-host Sheila Warren, Aves Stanley Kulikov, Compound's Robert Leshner, and Solana's Anatoly Yakovenko. Money Reimagined listeners get a special discount with the code COINDESK. Register today at converge.circle.com. Near is a revolutionary yet simple Web3 platform for building decentralized apps. Designed by developers for developers, over 700 projects are now building on Near's fast, secure, and scalable protocol. Whether you're a crypto native launching DeFi apps, NFT marketplaces, and play-to-earn games, or looking to migrate your project from Web2, Near makes it easy to build Web3 for the masses. Near offers developers a variety of tools, resources, and support for building apps, empowering communities, and creating a more fair, inclusive, and equitable future. Start your Web3 developer journey now by visiting Near at near.org. That's N-E-A-R.org. Well, so on that point, I would love to just ask as a follow-up, like, what are the sort of, you know, broad issues that are kind of surfacing a lot? And I'd love to, to ask you about this, John, first, just in general, when it comes to technology, because it's interesting, right? Because on the one hand, crypto, it is fundamentally a technology, but not everybody really gets that. They think about it as a financial instrument, and they forget sometimes that actually the technology is what really powers the entire thing. So I'm curious, you know, what either what BPC is going to take on that is or what you kind of hear from folks in Washington in these offices about the way that they're framing crypto. Is it as technology or is it more just the financial instruments? And what is BPC's kind of take on where crypto fits into the broader technology ecosystem? Because, of course, there's lots of innovation happening, you know, in cryptos happening within that context. Yeah, so let me take the technology versus like financial product issue uh, first. So I come from it from both angles because we've worked on tech policy. We've done work on AI, uh, augmented reality, broadband, you name it. Uh, we've also done work on post-crisis uh, financial regulation reform. So I kind of have like both perspectives on it, uh, which is fun to have. 
blockchain and distributed ledger technology, sort of the broader like umbrella technology around crypto. I think there are a lot of applications outside of cryptocurrencies. Capitol Hill hasn't paid as much attention to that yet. Obviously, there are exceptions from what I'm seeing. My view of like what's going on, I'm sure Josh might have a different set of people he talks to. But the main focus right now is on cryptocurrency specifically in the financial uh, space. That said, there are a whole host of issues that are coming up in crypto that might also apply to blockchain broadly. So like global competition uh, being a major issue uh, in this space. So that's important to sort of like have in mind. Then in terms of issues right now being discussed right now, okay, so global competition, I mentioned, consumer protections, Mm -hmm. financial stability, national security, energy and environment, the regulatory architecture, those are all like major issues that we've definitely heard people talk about and are stuff that we're at least trying to track, if not do like more in-depth research on. So one of the top topics, at least in the crypto space in the last few weeks, of course, has been the sanctioning of Tornado Cash, the Ethereum mixer that really is a software, not a person nor a company. And therefore, a lot of folks in the crypto world, at least, and sort of, I would say, broadly in the tech community, a little dismayed that the government took this step to take something that doesn't fit the normal uh, you know, qu- characteristics of one of the identities on the OFAC special designated nation- nationals list. I'd like both of you to weigh into this. Maybe Josh, I'll throw to you here because I want to put this in the context of privacy as a human right, as something that, in fact, you know, some people have argued could be uh, leverage for the United States to, you know, outcompete, say, China. Right? I know that that, that people like um, uh, Christian Carlo have argued strongly that a digital dollar should be something that differentiates itself from the Chinese digital yuan. Uh, and privacy as a sort of inbuilt context. Some people would look at what happened with Tornado Cash and say, well, why are you killing things that actually can, in a very sophisticated way, help to, to furnish that? How do we find the balance, I suppose, is the ultimate here from that geopolitical, strategic, pro-innovation perspective and whatever it is that's needed to keep us safe? First to the privacy point, the President's executive order, and we're going to get the reports in a, probably a week from now, had this great phrase that I really, you know, cannot underscore enough, digital assets with democratic values. And of course, what does that mean in practice? Well, privacy is core to that. And to what you were saying, this really means developing a cryptocurrency framework, maybe a US CBDC, but done differently than other countries are doing it that can serve as a model. We talk at the Atlantic Council for years about international standard setting. You know, Christian Carlo talks about China's model. That's an important model. There are 99 other CBDC models. I have them behind me. And there's a big interoperability problem here. And there's a big role for the U.S. to step in and say, hey, you want to do a CBDC? Whether we do one or not, we want you to know how to make it cyber safe, safe from hacking, and protect privacy at the same time. And we have the technology and the private sector, public sector partnerships to be able to do that. So there's a real role for that. And CBDCs can be a standard setter in that space. But then the tornado cash question you asked, you know, the core issue It's a very legitimate debate. I've been debating with many in Washington about it. The one thing I would say is that there needs to be room for nuance and there needs to be some space to understand where treasury is coming from. And this is something I've seen the crypto community actually do much better in the past two years than it did before, which is not just talk from the outside, but really talk from the inside of Washington, of how Washington works. And so the question I always ask back about Tornado Cash is, 
What should OFAC have done in the alternative? If you think it was not right to sanction Tornado Cash because you're sanctioning the technology, if they knew the illicit funds were flowing to North Korea, what is the best alternative for them? And I think it's important for those who disagree with the decision, which is a very legitimate point of view to have, to be able to answer that question in the alternative and not just say you can't sanction this. Because from a Treasury perspective, from a law enforcement perspective, they have to be able to do something to stop that illicit finance when they see it. I think that you make an excellent point, which is what are the ultimate public policy goals of various agencies and for that matter of, of Washington lawmakers, right? Like what are their primary policy agendas? And so I'd love to just kind of ask that question. Now that we're back in session, we're in a weird time that we get every every other year, you know, we're going to have a lot of campaign happening. So folks are going to, we have a kind of abbreviated session right now, then folks are going to hit the campaign trail by and large. We're going to have lame duck after the election. What are your predictions around what you think is going to happen in the kind of, call it the broad fintech space? Maybe, you know, maybe not as narrow as crypto, but kind of in the broad, do you see things moving? Do you see them going as writers? What is your sense? A lot of active conversations happening in Congress right now on these topics. Yeah, I think this is going to be one of the busiest and most important periods this fall and winter for both the digital asset space, this fintech technology overall. And here's why. We have traction from both the Hill and the administration at the same time. So we're likely to see, we hope it comes out, is this, you know, Waters-McHenry stablecoin bill. At the same time, we're going to get the series of reports from the executive order from Treasury and the Fed and others on digital assets, on CBDC and otherwise. So you have this confluence of events where both the Hill and the administration put out more details than they've ever put out before. And the one thing we notice in our research on CBDCs is almost every country that moves forward on a CBDC and 16 of the G20 economies are now in development, pilot, or launch, so 16 of the largest economies are moving quickly, do so in tandem with a crypto regulatory framework. So it's really important not to think of these things in a vacuum. It's not just does a country do a CBDC or not? Do they regulate crypto or not? They tend to do it together holistically. And that's actually what I see developing in the US. And that's a welcome step for my perception to think of these things as one package together from an innovation standpoint. Thanks, Josh. I really appreciate that. And I know that we're cutting up right against your time. So thanks so much for joining us today. It's much appreciated, the insights that you bring. John, I'll, I'll turn to you, uh, you know, a similar question, kind of get a sense of the framing of what you think might happen this session, but also want to ask you to contextualize this in the context of Biden's ex executive order, right? So we did have this executive order, very positive, I would say, on crypto and digital assets generally, CBDCs as well. Um, and we've seen agencies some of them have seemed to have taken up the mantle and some have not really seemed to. So what's your sense on how that's playing into the policymaking we're seeing up in the legislative branch? Sure. So let me take uh, both of them, starting with Capitol Hill and what we should expect in the next Congress first. So again, no one knows who's going to you know, be in power you know, a few months after the election. So that's going to be a big wild card. That said, in the cryptocurrency space, I see both parties as being relatively open-minded on the topic. There are people who are, you know, very gung-ho pro or like uh, critical, but I think most people are pretty open-minded on the topic. So I think regardless of who is in power, whether it's the Democrats, Republicans, or one side gets the Senate, one side gets the House, I uh, think crypto issues are going to just continue to be talk about, talked about in top of mind. And again, current events often drive what Capitol Hill pays attention to. 
even more so than who's in power. So major event happening, say like a, uh, you mentioned tornado cash, maybe something along those lines happening again, or some other uh, big issue could drive Capitol Hill's agenda. So I think these issues are here to say, regardless of uh, who's in power, and they're, they're going to be ongoing. With regards to the broader administration and what they're doing, yes, uh, different agencies uh, have sort of taken a different approach uh, when it comes to the Biden administration's executive order from earlier this year. Uh, as Josh mentioned, there are going to be a lot of studies out there that people at both the think tank community and Capitol Hill are going to be reading closely. And it'll be interesting to see uh, what these reports emphasize specifically and how they are sort of like uh, taken on Capitol Hill. And what do I mean by that specifically? Uh, oftentimes, like a Hill staffer, as you mentioned, I think earlier in this segment, is covering like 10, 20 different issues. Uh, report that they get, what is within, let's say, like the first five pages or so might unexpectedly be like the thing that becomes top of mind for them or their boss. So that's something to just keep in mind. Like these reports are very important and what gets emphasized can drive uh, policy quite a bit because Hill staffers and policymakers are uh, pressed for time. You know, John, not the EO specifically, but certainly the context I think of the EO landed uh, is, is one of like multiple different perspectives on whether or not the entire structure of the U.S. financial regulatory framework needs to be rethought, right? Whether or not our securities laws dating back from 1933 need to be updated, whether or not there should be some sort of umbrella uh, mechanism by which the CFTC, the SEC, and others can be ready for the 21st century together in a united way you know, specifically as it regards, you know, obviously, you know, this, this the most cutting edge of technologies in, in, the, in the crypto space. So is there appetite for significant change on any of those levels? What's the likelihood that we might get some proper overhaul of our legislative uh, framework? Yeah, the regulatory architecture is a big one. So just to give a little bit of historical perspective, I got my start in financial regulation after the financial crisis. The regulatory architecture question was big then as well. So after the crisis, why did the regulators uh, not prevent the crisis? Uh, could they have done more? And is the structure of the regulatory agencies the issue? So our regulatory architecture has often been driven by what was the latest crisis and what new agency was created after that crisis. So if you look at the history of the different financial regulatory agencies, often linked to a major crisis or event of sorts. So like I think the most recent crisis, we had the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, CFPB, come about as a result, as well as I think a few other players like the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which sort of is a coordinating body for different regulatory agencies, not necessarily an agency on its own, and the uh, Office of Financial Research. So yeah, that's kind of like some background. And it's very hard and to uh, change the regulatory architecture beyond adding a new agency. So there's some inertia baked into the system to begin with. And depending on who has jurisdiction over what agency, uh, so which committees have jurisdiction over what agency, that can introduce a whole other layer of politics on top of just the general policy question. So in the case of cryptocurrencies, we have a new financial innovation out there, and I think it's a good time to start asking questions of, okay, well, what's, what's the right way to set up our regulatory architecture 
given these innovations and other stuff we know about, you know, uh, financial regulation in general, what are some of the questions that we're trying to answer? So questions about like what cryptocurrency should be classified, should it be a security commodity or you name it, uh, that's going to drive things. And there's also questions about, are there middle ground steps? So some people talk about, say, merging the SEC and CFTC. This was a big question in the uh, post-financial crisis era. And a middle ground step might have been to have them do joint uh, sort of like uh, task forces or like studies on a certain issue. Uh, And I think that's something that people are going to think about in the coming years and already are. As to your question of the likelihood of all this happening, I'm not going to give an answer other than to say that there is inertia in the system that often slows down any attempts to uh, change a regulatory structure. Uh, There's also questions of, well, what would the appropriate uh, approach be? And there's the political question around why, you know, certain people might get behind a certain agency or a certain structure. So interesting, John. I mean, I think, you know, the takeaway, I think, for me is that there's just a lot of moving parts, a lot of players. Uh, We are expecting, again, a a lot of activity in in this next few months uh, leading into a new term where we have some new folks who are going to be weighing in on this. And of course, the relationships between executive branch agencies, the legislative policymakers at this point, the judicial branch is playing a a new role in, in some of these things as well. And of course, the connection that both you and Josh noted to other outside of the U.S., extraterritorial agencies, standards bodies, like there's so many people, I think, and groups looking at this. But chief among those are the Atlantic Council and the Partisan Policy Center. So I want to thank you, uh, John Sershian, and our other guest, Josh Lipsky, for joining us today. And as always, thank my co-host, Michael Casey. I hope this was an instructive overview. It certainly was for me about how think tanks are thinking about crypto policy, both in Washington and beyond. Join us next week for another episode. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guests Josh Lipsky and John Sarissian. This episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine, and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Hopefully, this is the last time you hear this ad, because with Chime Checking Account, features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts, or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals 24. That's chime.com goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply.
Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.